And I came over this tiny little crest of a hill and there was that buck standing there looking straight at me. listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. How's it going, everybody? I'm Darren with the Muzzleloaders Podcast, and you are listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast. And today, we have Mike Reber with us, and we are going to be talking about a whole bunch of awesome stuff from uh, hunting to cooking to muzzleloading to all that kind of exciting stuff. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And so I think I want to start out a little bit uh, and just have you introduce yourself uh, because people, for the most part, want to listen to people they know and understand. So uh, how did you get started in muzzleloading, outdoor industry, hunting, all that stuff? Oh, well, it's a good question. Muzzleloading, I got started in a long time ago uh, back in the upstate hills of New York. Uh, I was uh, not really, I did not grow up around muzzleloading. Um, we kind of took advantage of the uh, late muzzle loading season, which was like a week after the regular gun season. So uh, I, I saw the opportunity um, to, to kind of get out and uh, deer hunt more than I already did, which was already a lot. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there was, there was a Remington 700 um, that my dad had. And uh, <laughs> I actually, it was, it was in the box brand new, and he didn't really know how to use it, and I didn't really know how to use it. But uh, after an afternoon of sitting there looking at this thing, I was like, okay, we're going to put this together. Um, and it just took off from there. I was totally, like, just obsessed with muzzleloading after that. Um, because really at that time, nobody was doing it. Um, and the people who were were, of course, like super hardcore in the original the original muzzleloading yeah. gang. What, what um, year so, approximately was this? Uh, it was probably i mean early early 2000s for sure uh-huh. um so i mean muzzle loading has been around forever obviously and but i think in in the hunting community um especially you know of the the northeast i think yeah it wasn't really a, a really popular thing i think some people um took advantage of that late muzzle loader deer season um but a lot of people just didn't know what it was well, I think that's um, that's like the era where the the TC uh, Omega was just getting fired up. So that's yeah, like kind of the yeah. That's really when muzzleloading, muzzleloader hunting, I think, was starting really starting to take hold. Yeah, and I think um, you know I I got this thing together, and I remember being like, okay, so I have this I have this seven hundred together, and it was a bolt action, um, and I I didn't know actually where to go get any powder or anything, <laughs> um, and I funny enough I went to this this little local gun shop uh, in upstate New York. And uh, it turns out that this guy was also super into muzzle loading. And he was like, oh yeah, come over here to the to this side of the store where of course they had like shelves of stuff that had dust on them because nobody up there was doing this. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, I, yeah, I started, I started uh, shooting that Remington 700 um, and I put a scope on it and I put a bipod on it. And I remember just like, I was just, I fell in love with this gun. Um, and it turns out I actually shot my first white-tailed buck with that gun on an opening day. So it was a regular season, but I just loved it so much that I didn't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, yeah, that's a whole other story in itself. <laughs> sure. But that's kind of how I got started with muzzle loading. Yeah, yeah. Well, let yeah. let's hear that story. Let's because that's oh, one of the things yeah. I want to talk so, about is like your yeah, you know, no, no. It's a, it's a it's a good one. This is one of those like got to be at the right place at the right time. So uh, I guess it was mid to late November, New York. Uh, you know, upstate New York, uh, snowy morning. One of those ones where you're like, okay, like the four wheelers got the ice on the seat that you gotta defrost, <laughs> and uh, but you know, you do what you gotta do. Like, like, there's no better time to hunt the gun season than opening day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been a big bow hunter, um, and obviously one of the one of the advantages of bow hunting is that you get that early season. Yeah. Um, because once the guns start going off, you know, good luck trying to get a deer, right? So. Sure. Uh, I went out uh, and I sat in this beautiful field and I knew there was a buck in the area because uh, I'd seen him bow hunting. And you know, it's that picturesque morning where the snow is falling and you just think, okay, this deer is going to come walking out and everything's going to work. Mm. So it didn't, of course, <laughs> and nothing, nothing came out. Um, I went home back to the house that morning and uh, well, we were just sitting there. It was probably like 10 o'clock, uh, then 11 o'clock rolled around. And everybody's comparing, you know, stories. You see anything, you know, uh, and I just decided, okay, I'm going to get on the four wheeler and just go for a ride. Um, because I was again, like, I don't know, I was probably like 18 years old and decided well, I'm bored sitting at the house. So here we go. And I took the muzzle loader with me. Um, and I had it, I had it, I'll never forget. I had this sling on it. It had that big Harris bipod on the front that weighed like six pounds. <laughs> it had a scope that probably weighed about eight pounds. I mean, this whole thing is like a small cannon. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I actually, I go back down that same field. I end up seeing a deer in the woods, um, and I didn't know what it was at the time. And so, just kept going. I parked the four wheeler, shut it down. I ended up walking, kind of, you know, in a in a big circle around and I came over this tiny little crest of a hill and there was that buck standing there looking straight at me um I threw that Remington 700 up against my shoulder and just boom drilled him dropped him and of course you know like my emotions are all over the place I'm trying to reload this thing like you know like oh what about if I need another shot and like you know I'm dropping primers in the snow and it was crazy (laughs) um but it was honestly it was it was such a cool experience i'll never forget like the just the the white cloud of smoke that came out of that thing oh yeah um it was just it was something that i'll never forget and of course it was my first buck um and it was really cool so i was hooked i was hooked since then i mean it's not something you can make up i mean i got bit by the muzzle loading bug yeah it's 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 a real thing for sure (laughs) No (laughs) no question so you said that was your first muzzleloading buck and your first buck in general. Um, that was my and, first buck in general, yeah. And I can see, just judging by the wall, that it led to many more. Um, <laughs> so there's a few up here. I've been pretty lucky. <laughs> so how how what percentage of your hunting? Because I know you hunt all the time, multiple different species. What percentage of that do you think is muzzleloading? Because you're also a big archer. Uh, definitely a big bow hunter, um, and I think. You know, I, I always enjoyed bow hunting just because it got us out in um, the Northeast just that much sooner. I mean, it opened a month ahead of time. So, and being in the being in the woods in the Northeast during the early fall is just 
tremendous. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just like an amazing place with the leaves and the weather's perfect. And, you know, the ruts, the, the ruts kind of like just starting to you know, get together. And, and you can, I mean, if you don't get something during bow season, you have the leg up on, on gun season. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've always been a big bow hunter. Um, obviously, I, I relocated to Texas uh, a number of years ago and uh, I've kept bow hunting, but, uh, you know, got back into the, the swing of, uh, more rifle, more muzzle loader. Um, and muzzle loading hunting down here is really uh, not as uh, popular as I think in a lot of other parts of the U.S. Because you're, um, you're in think, Texas now, right? I'm in Texas now. Yeah. So I, you know, I think I think a lot of folks uh, down here are definitely, you know, they they have their go-to rifle. Um, as I, as you know, I do too. Um, but trying to bring some more awareness to the to the area with muzzleloader because I think um, especially now with all the new models that have come out, I mean, the technology has just soared. So yeah. it's not, it's not what it used to be. Right. Mm-hmm. So what are the and seasons, think, what are the seasons yeah. like? So, cause I know mm-hmm. New York has like a North and a South zone. Um, and then I kind of want to know, like explain that. And then how is that different from Texas? Because in Oregon we have a weird, like our, ours is, strictly points based so you yeah. put in you need x amount of points usually to draw so it's like for instance i put in for like the sled springs tag this year that usually takes about five to six points to draw i have yeah. f- about five or six so i should draw but if you don't then you kind of you don't get anything and you got to hope for like maybe you can go buy a general season tag but usually those are really limited like that's kind of right. how it, wor- it, it works here but it's so much yeah. different in those other parts of the country New York, uh, so New York, if you would go by zone, um, and actually, and I'm sure it's probably still this way, but they, they would also tell you in that zone, whether it's a, um, shotgun or a rifle zone. Mm-hmm. And that was based off, I think, you know, uh, population size in that zone. So for a long time, uh, zone that I hunted in upstate New York was a shotgun only zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hunted with, you know, um, you know, a, uh, a slug and I shot my very first deer with a 20 gauge with a slug, mm-hmm. um, which was, which was exciting and different. It was probably the, one of the last year I've shot <laughs> with a shotgun, <laughs> um, but it worked. And, and actually uh, a lot of people up there still hunt in those zones um, and they're great hunting with shotguns. And, you know, there's plenty of like those Hornady SST shells that came out a number of years ago. Those things are like shooting a rifle cartridge. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, in New York by zone, um, typically if you buy a, uh, a tag, it'll come with just an antlered buck tag. And then to get a doe, um, depending on what zone you're in, you know, they'll issue a doe permit. Um, and then there's preference points that build off of that. If you, if you don't, you know, if you aren't approved for it, um, Texas is a completely, uh, completely different thing. Uh, Texas goes by county. Um, and then because there's a lot of, um, you know, 95% of Texas is private land um, of that private property. A lot are managed properties here. Um, and so, you know, we're able to have a different, a different set of tags uh, mm-hmm. that are issued by Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, and depending on, you know, the size of your ranch and, and management uh, level and things like that. So it's a completely different game down here. Yeah. So uh, in those states, so Texas and New York, mm-hmm. you have your, you start with archery. If you aren't successful, that turns into another tag? 
so in New York, uh, you'll have, so like take, take for example, my license in New York would have, I think a, a buck tag for bow season. So we'll have a bow season specific tag. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it'll have a, and it might be bow muzzleloader actually. Now that I think about it. Um, don't quote me on that, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it'll have a, it'll have a, uh, for a, for a bow season, you'll have a buck tag and then a, I think it's either sex tag mm-hmm. on that. Um, and then obviously depending on what zone you're in, you might be able to get uh, additional tags for, for does because, especially uh, down like Westchester County, New York, uh, did a lot of hunting down there. Um, you know, while I lived in, in New York and Connecticut, um, they're overrun with deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what the, what the towns will do is issue additional tags. If you punch a doe tag first versus your buck tag, you oh, bring okay. them in and they'll give you another tag. Um, Cause they, they want to really like bring down the population uh, and do it right, which they are. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, a success story there. Um, but yeah, so Texas is totally different than that. Texas, uh, basically issues the same amount of tags on your standard, um, on your standard license. Um, and then depending on where people hunt, you know, there's different, different, uh, restrictions, point restrictions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating because here you have, cause I know Idaho, so Idaho is right next to us there. You can buy, so you get your like your elk tag it's an archery tag if you don't kill a bull then it turns into like a muzzleloader tag later in the year so you get a couple of chances in yeah. oregon it's like you have only like if you get a you know an art general season actually they don't they're kind of doing away with that in a lot of areas here but say you have your archery season elk tag you have that and then if you don't kill something when the season's over it's just done you know you don't get it doesn't turn into anything else you know yeah yeah yeah, I think in New York the the bow tag, uh, it I think it was bow muzzleloader, um, and and obviously a lot of people just didn't muzzleload hunt either, so mm-hmm. you know that tag was no good after that. Um, but uh, yeah, then you'd have a general season tag. Interesting. So yeah. what what kinds of muzzleloading do you have experience with? Because it sounds like you took a pretty, uh, well, well at least what I've seen is a pretty common route in muzzleloading where you start off as yeah. like just wanting to have additional hunting opportunities. Yeah, I um I started off with that 209 primer. Um and I you know it's 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 kind of interesting to talk about because I I didn't know anything about muzzleloading when I started. And I I really quickly became to just love muzzleloading because it was it was easier than I thought. I mm-hmm. think my uh imagination about muzzleloading was kind of like, okay, uh, I got to pour all this powder in and, you know, I don't know how, you know, there's some kind of cap here. Um, and I think if I had started in more of a traditional sense, I think I probably, I'm not sure if it would have stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the 209 and a bunch of Pyrodex pellets were, I mean, it was super easy. Um, and so for me, for me, it was like, yeah, give, give me more of this because yeah. this is, this is awesome. Yeah, that's kind of um, so, that's kind of how mine went. My journey went as well. And something I've heard from a lot of people is that they started off with the two hundred nine primers, like an inline, because it's so much it's so much less intimidating and it reduces the barrier to entry. Um, yeah. But at least for me, that has translated into a desire to shoot like flintlocks, percussion, you know, side locks, all that kind of stuff. Because um, I think it's the natural progression. If you really enjoy the inlines, it's like, well, let's try something a little more challenging, a little different, you know. And that's and that's exactly what's happened to me. I mean, I so I drew a muzzleloader tag for Colorado mule deer last year, um, and 
it was great because you know okay i had a i took the scope off my gun because i of course coming from the northeast you know you were able to have a, a scope on your muzzle loader so i've always had a scope on it mm-hmm. um and i really appreciate what colorado uh wildlife has done which is you know hey that, that muzzleloader it needs to be a little bit more traditional it needs to be, you know otherwise it's the distance that you can get is pretty much like a rifle right so mm-hmm. take the scope off um and uh i i put those williams peep, peep sights on it and it was amazing yeah. um and so between that and shooting loose powder um it was really a cool experience and it you know, it was one that I had to learn rather quickly because I just, you know, I had shot um, pellets before, um, you know, with that 209. Um, but it was really cool to get ready for Colorado. And I don't, I actually don't think I'll go back to pellets because I like the precision mm-hmm. of measuring out my own powder. Yeah. Do you measure by weight or volume? Uh, weight at the moment. Weight. Yes. That's what, that's, we actually made a post about it today. Um, but I think weight is for myself. If I'm using an inline weight is probably the only way I'll measure moving forward. Um, just cause having tested it, I've found that measuring by volume is, is pretty honestly for what it is, it's pretty stinking accurate, but you have a variance of about plus or minus one grain. So there's about two grains of difference given on any given load, which, um, when you're shooting at a hundred yards, you're probably not going to notice that much. But if you're, you know, if you're using the Acura or, or the Vortec or like any of these more long range muzzle loaders, you'll notice that at like 300 yards, um, because you're just needing to be so much more precise. Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's really similar to, uh, people that reload their, you know, rifle cartridges, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I'm shooting long distance more than likely, I really need a precision uh, load here, you know, and they're able to do that. So, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to stick with the loose powder. Um, I really like it. And so uh, I have a, I have the new Acura on the wall that I'm looking forward to working up a load for. Nice. Nice. Are you uh, using Blackhorn or Pirate X or? Uh, uh, Pirate X at the moment, Blackhorn's on the way. Oh, you found some. I did find some. Oh, I would man. love to tell people where, but it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I found some uh, at a store. I was over in Boise, Idaho this past weekend, and I posted on my Instagram story, but I found a 10-ounce bottle of Blackhorn for $65. And I was like, oh, man. Give me, give me. Are there any in the back? Yeah, yeah. seriously. Yeah, I was like, man. Well, and it was just like uh, $65 before, you know, before all this, I would have been like, man, I'm never, I would never pay that. But now it's like – right. Right. I, I seriously consider getting that. You know, it's like that's a pretty yeah. decent. People are paying like two hundred fifty dollars for a ten ounce container sometimes. So. Yeah, I, uh, I I guess what I could tell people is just keep uh, searching the internet and just yeah. keep typing it in and refreshing those pages every few days. And it's it's coming back. I mean, it's definitely mm-hmm. not coming back as as quickly as we would all like it to, but yeah, it's coming back. Sign up for all the back in stock notifications. That's hundred percent. Yeah. And then, and then when you get them, you need to buy, like, you can't be like, all right, I guess I'll do it tomorrow. You just got to buy. Yeah. You got to do it now. Cause as soon as those, I mean, we've even experienced it. Like if we get stuff like that, like two and nine primers or black corner, it gets back in. And as soon as that, uh, back in stock email goes out, I mean, they're gone. There's, you know, (laughs) yeah, 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 you definitely got to get on it. Um, what is, how have you found the performance with the Pyrodex? Um, I like the Pyrodex. I haven't had, uh, any issues with it. Um, I'm interested to compare it to the Blackhorn. I've heard nothing but amazing things about the Blackhorn. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that's, that's kind of a 
you know, something on my list that I'm looking to compare. And I, you know, I, for a long time, uh, shot an Encore and that thing was, I mean, spot on the money at 250 yards and the, the, uh, you know, majority of the time that I used it in New York, you know, a a 200 yard shot was a really long one. Mm -hmm. Um, but down here in Texas, I mean, we just have long senderos and bigger fields and things like that um it's a big state so uh yeah i'm i'm looking forward to the performance of the blackhorn and the new acura um because i'm hoping hopefully we could stretch that out to past 300 without you know any crazy variance on the on the pattern yeah i mean it definitely has the knockdown power to get out to that 300 but it carries about a thousand um out to that distance which is what you need uh, it's just like kind of tough because I found that the 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 variables in the wind, like the uh, which I think will probably be even more of a factor in Texas, but the wind, yeah, the, the sure. thermals, like everything is just it's exponentially more when you're messing with a muzzleloader because it's a bigger bullet going slower, and so you have to be so accurate with that with those measurements. Yeah, no, no question about it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm shooting uh, power belts. I always just shot power belts. I, I think when I first started muzzleloading, I, I shot whatever came with that Remington, and then I, I bought some other stuff that kind of, you know, you, you sit it in that little plastic seat, and it kind of looks a little wonky, and it looks like it's not facing straight down the yeah. barrel. <laughs> uh, and then when I found power belts, like, okay, this is the real deal. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've never ever ventured away from those. What uh, do you use the Aerolites or the Platinums or uh, the Aerolites? The Aerolites, nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. those yeah. those have been one of our best sellers for a long time. And I tell you what, they pack the punch. You know, I mean, they'll knock down. I, I haven't been out west uh, for an elk yet. It's always it's still on my list. It seems like it just every year. It's like okay, I'm saving points here and I'm saving points there. But one of these days we'll pull the trigger. Uh, but I I can tell you that on the on a whitetail it packs a serious punch. Oh, to- totally. The one thing mm-hmm. uh, I'd be interested because we've shot them quite a bit. Um, yeah. But as far as like, because we can't really hunt with them in Oregon. So we don't, we are, as far as our experience goes on like actual practical hunting goes, it's tough because, you know, we can't use them here. Uh, but as far as right. their performance on game, have you found that a, uh, a lower charge performs better or do you use a Magnum typically? Uh, I typically use a Magnum. Okay. And is that, per- yeah. has that been, an accuracy thing or uh no i just i don't know i mean i i guess from my experience that's what groups the best for me um and that's what uh just knocks down the best i haven't it hasn't really destroyed anything uh you know it's not like okay well that was too much or Mm -hmm. anything like that um but yeah it seems to be the right combo nice yeah that's i think every muzzleloader is different and that's what's so fun is the load development whenever you get a new muzzleloader yeah, I mean, I, I used to, uh, I used to, when I first started muzzleloading, um, I, I spoke with, uh, with my uncle who was a, who was a kind of my, uh, inspiration for getting into muzzleloading. He had a muzzleloader, um, and he was, you know, I, I shoot 150 grains. Okay. Um, but I, you know, my, my group really varies. And mm-hmm. so then I started shooting 100 grain and that, that didn't happen. Um, so that was, you know, 100 grains of powder, obviously. So that was, uh, yeah. I, I like the experimental side of muzzleloader. Well, I think when it comes to that kind of load development too, all of the same load development uh, traits, I guess, that are present in center fires, it's all the same stuff 
in muzzle loading, but you have so many other additional variables as far as like making sure that your pack is consistent, making sure that uh, your powder, because you're, you're taking loose powder with you to the range. It's not like it's all encapsulated and, and away from the weather. You got to make sure you're protecting right. that. So all those additional variables, I think, make for a really challenging and fun like load development experience. Yeah, and I think at the same time, I mean, maintenance uh, and upkeep on that um, on that muzzle loader is, it's just as critical in the in the shooting phase. I mean, I think if you put a rifle cartridge in, it really doesn't matter if there's oil in the chamber, if it's dry if, or, or whatnot, it, it's going to go off. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've definitely experienced, you know, like, okay, I put, you know, some, some stuff in the barrel, some stuff, you know, around the, around the, uh, you know, in the, in the chamber and all of a sudden it's like, Oh, it's not going off because the whole thing got wet or, yeah. Right. I mean, there's different variables that happen. It just makes it that much more challenging. Um, you know, I remember getting that Remington 700. It came with a weather shroud. And I was like, well, why do you Ooh, need that? Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, okay. Because the whole thing gets wet and we're not going anywhere. Yeah, seriously. I Yeah. And it's really crazy, too, because, like, the weather is is really a huge factor. Because I when I was hunting this year, it was pouring rain. The weather was awful. And even carrying the muzzle loader like horizontal, because you really don't want to carry it muzzle down because that's, you know, can be unsafe. But if you carry it like horizontal, I was wandering around and I realized there was a bunch of water like in the stock because the LRX has that free floated barrel. So there's a bunch of water like collecting in the stock. So I went to like dump it out and a whole bunch of water just poured out of the barrel. And I was like, well, this, this probably isn't good. I probably, <laughs> I probably should you know, find one of those barrel covers or something. It's tough because I had a muzzle brake because the barrel covers don't cover the muzzle brakes. It doesn't even really matter. So you just kind of, you know, got to hope for the best, I guess, you know? Yeah. And I think you live and you learn. I, you know, I, I definitely am a lot more aware when I'm carrying a muzzle loader around the woods with me with Mm -hmm. the weather, you know, and sticks and branches and all sorts of stuff, just because it, it, it takes a lot less for it to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really only so much you can do too. At the end of the day, it's like, right. I just, I'm glad I don't have to trust my life to a muzzle loader, you know, for the most part, <laughs> I have my muzzle true. loader and my 357. So if something goes for haywire, I'm not, I'm not relying on the, the muzzle. The loader 357 that, usually goes off. Yeah. Usually gets the job done. So, right. Right. <laughs> but right. Um, yeah, I think that that, that added challenge, even, even with inlines, the added challenge is, uh, is really unique and special to muzzle loading and, and for people that really enjoy the hunting and the sporting aspect of it, uh, it it's it, in my mind, it's kind of like a happy medium between archery and rifle because archery season is extremely challenging. Um, yeah. and it's grueling physically, it's grueling mentally. Um, and then rifle season, it, it is the same thing, but it, it's different. That's more, a lot more technical. You're going to be shooting a lot longer distances. Um, you know, that sort of thing. And muzzleloading is kind of like, you get a little bit of both. You have some of the technical aspect from rifle hunting and, and honestly, archery is technical as well, but just a different kind. But then you also have some of the challenge of having to get closer and, um, you know, the skill of being just, a uh, you know, in the, in the forest. And so I think it's a very unique aspect of hunting. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I think when it comes to muzzleloading, there's knowing that you really have one shot. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, like, quick reload scenarios and great tools that have evolved over the number of years uh, since, you know, the, the new kind of fangled muzzle loaders have come around, but we all know you're really going to get one good shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so even, makes- 
even the fastest people that I know about 30 seconds. And so yeah. if you get a second shot, it's not really, that's out of your hands. Like the deer, like the, you know, whatever you're hunting, if it happens to stick around for 30 seconds, then great. But that's not, you can't rely on that. No. And, and when your adrenaline is rushing, mm-hmm. you know, trying to put a primer in is like, you know, you got my hand like this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so doing it at the range, you might be 30 seconds doing it in the woods. You know, you probably went through like three primers on the ground and one you'd finally get in there. Yeah. I mean, with 209 primers being so hard to find, I mean, you can't afford to be doing that kind of stuff. Every, no, you cannot. <laughs> every primer counts. <laughs> I have mine under lock and key. Yeah, seriously. Um, I missed the days when I was like, ah, oh, you know, I, yeah, I don't need to bend over and pick up that primer. It's fine. I'll find it later. Not, not anymore. I will search no. high and low. No, no. <laughs> and if someone leaves one on the bench at the range, you're like, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll, I'll use that one. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you have any experience with flintlocks? Uh, no experience with flintlocks. Um, but it's something that's on my list. I think, um, you know, it, I, the more I, um, my experience with muzzleloaders grows, I'm like more and more intrigued with flintlocks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, obviously like, uh, the, the mystique about it, the, the, like, classic kind of nature about it i just i don't know like you can't you can't be in muzzleloading and not try it mm-hmm. so that's that's uh yeah it's i kinda, like it. i really want to try it it's kind of the next step you know yeah yeah Once well and i think it. i think when you feel more comfortable just with okay here's how my regular inline works yeah i know about the powder i know about the primer i know how to take it apart things like that and you know the basic fundamentals of how the heck it goes together mm-hmm. um i think if i started with a flintlock i would be totally lost yeah, I think so. And I think that muzzleloading too, people have a lot of anxiety surrounding it because there is more to yeah. think about. And there is, I mean, very real safety concerns if you do things improperly. And yeah. so I think a lot of people, when they first get started, to start on a flintlock would be like way too, it'd be like sensory overload, you know? And right. once they get right. comfortable, they're like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow myself up. I understand the procedure. Like that's kind of the next step of, you know, maybe you move to a percussion and then maybe you move right. to a flintlock, you know, and you just kind of add more to it. And as you develop that proficiency, uh, that anxiety starts to go away. Yeah, for sure. And I can tell you, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I built the blunderbuss and, uh, back there kind of on the wall. I don't know if you can Heck see yeah. it over here. Grab, uh, grab that sucker. I want to, I want to get a closer you look see at it. it? You yeah. see it? Oh my goodness, that wall is way bigger than I thought it was. As you, as you it's like, man. It's a really big wall. Yeah. So, I mean, you could, there it is. Uh, yeah. It came out awesome, by the way. Yeah. So if anyone's actually thinking about picking up this kit, you totally should. Um, because it was the right amount of uh, kind of chiseling and fitting. And then, of course, the finishing is totally left up to whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, so I just blued the barrel with like a quick bluing. Um, and then fit everything in there. And it, I mean, it, it, I'm super excited to shoot it, but I, I've never shot anything like it. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety there, but I, but I'm, I'm getting over it. Um, yeah, for sure. It, it's going to hit the range soon. Well, and you put it together. So if I remember correctly, you bought that and like had it put together within a week or so, like it was really, well, fast. I mean, if you, it, you know me by now, I, you know, I'm kind of like a, a kid on Christmas. So like, I can't. <laughs> 
sit on these things and wait while they sit in the corner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, bo- <laughs> the box came and then I'm like, okay, we got to build this thing. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I did that. And then, uh, I put a wax finish on the outside of it, uh, which I like for, for weather and durability. And it, I mean, it's really sharp looking. I'm really excited about it. I'm not going to lie. I really want to challenge myself to shoot a turkey with it next year. Yeah. Sir, uh, and, and challenge oh. being the key word there. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't even uh i'm it's hard enough for me with a shotgun so for me yeah. like let's get them even closer and then shoot them with this yeah i think so we have uh, another gentleman which i believe last so as of day recording it's june 8th i think last uh last week's episode with gary lewis he built a uh, a flintlock blunderbuss and then shot a turkey with it and he's going to be doing some testing with it for um, just to determine what the maximum range is like effective on a turkey because uh, turkeys are kind of tough. They're a tough bird, you know. Yeah, it's uh, they're. I mean, I've shot them with twelve gauge and they've kept on running. So yeah. <laughs> you got to be on the money. And you know, I I think uh, a lot of turkey hunters like it like a challenge, right? So mm-hmm. if you started with a shotgun, then maybe you went to a bow. I've shot a turkey with a bow. It is super addictive. Yeah. Um, but uh, with the blunderbuss, not many could say that they've, they've done that. So I want to, uh, I want to join that club. Yeah, seriously. That's a club I want to join too, because the turkeys, turkey hunting is really fun. It is challenging, but it's kind of like, once you get the, once you have the science down, it's kind of like, you know, you can, you can be pretty effective at it. Um, oh yeah. And you kind of, you look for that next challenge, which I think the blunderbuss is a great option. Yeah. I'm actually glad that I did not attempt that this year because turkey season in Texas this year was like historically, uh, just difficult. Really? (laughs) Yeah. I was able to, I, I did knock down two birds, but it took a lot of, uh, a lot of convincing and there was a ton of wind and it was just a really weird season and they just weren't committed to, uh, they weren't committed to the calls. They definitely weren't committed to decoys. Um, I mean, we hmm. literally watch birds fly off a roost and then walk the other direction. So. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, the blunderbuss was not going to reach out. It it seems like this year I didn't I didn't turkey hunt at all this year just because I was so focused on bear hunting and I mm. was focused on that for the whole spring and I never had an opportunity to turkey hunt. But there was turkeys everywhere. They were gobbling all so. Um, I feel like this year would have been a great year to try and turkey hunt with a blunderbuss, but I was too focused on bear hunting. So it's just, there's just too many, there's too many things to do too many hunts. The problem, the, the problems of being a hunter. Right? <laughs> exactly. I want to hunt this, but it's at the same time as this other I don't thing have I want to hunt. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good problem to have though. It's a great problem to have. Yep. Yeah. And then I ended up calling in a couple of doubles. I could have killed so many coyotes, but it's just like, you're just focused on the bear, you know, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. It is. it is. So something we haven't even touched on at all so far on this podcast is your proficiency at the grill. And, um, and I, I guess you are doing that. And I believe from our last conversation, you're going to be switching to more of that full-time stuff. I'm full-time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to be Absolutely. awesome. And uh, you possess a skill that I do not. And so uh, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit and like talk about your history and your passion uh, with, with, uh, you know, cooking. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't even know where to start. I guess I've, I've been around just great food and cooking my entire life. You know, I grew up in, um, <laughs> in New York with a 
a dad that was a New York City fireman. So, you know, he cooked for the guys, right? Like, mm. loved cooking. So when I went to the firehouse to go to work with him, you know, he cooked. It was cool. It was like a big team environment. Um, so that's, that's cool in its own way. And then, um, like, on my mom's side of the family, my grandmother, um, she cooked. My mother cooked. I mean, it's, you know, Italian side of the family. Like, we're cooking. Like, even if it's five people, we're going to cook for – 15 um and so so cooking has just always been a part of my life uh and then you know as i got older you know i cooked it at deer camp and i cooked in college and um i've always just loved um i love any kind of cooking but uh wild game cooking um i really fell in love with during college uh i think just it was kind of at a time where i wanted to experiment with different kinds of recipes um, and I grew up around a lot of the same recipes that a lot of hunters did, which was, uh, Hey, we're going to take this, um, and wrap it in bacon and put it in, in the skillet and, you know, put a bunch of butter in it and it's good. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I always have to like preface with someone this is like, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, uh, but, uh, I, I wanted to do something different with it. And mm-hmm. so, um, I started making some different dishes and uh, trying to modernize, I guess, in a way, um, how people thought and think of cooking wild game. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a absolutely wonderful ingredient. And we're really so lucky in the U.S. to have so much stuff to hunt, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like, think about the, the just range of, of animals um, and game that you can hunt, right? Yeah, From totally. Small game, rabbits, pheasant, elk deer turkey whatever i mean there's all sorts of stuff um and so yeah i just i started doing some different stuff with wild game and then it stuck and one thing led to another and uh i started uh, a barbecue uh company last year um and uh i had a rig built here in texas by this awesome company called mill scale metalworks um out of lockhart and uh they built me this really cool um, live fire barbecue. Um, mm-hmm. and so I have, uh, two girls on that, uh, and really focus on wild game, uh, for hunting ranches. Um, and it's a lot of fun and it's, it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's fun to show people, you know, all the different things you could do with it. And cause I think, I think we all run out of, you know, and you, you get into a rut with things that you like to cook. Yeah. Um, and so it's fun to compare recipes and, uh, you know, cook for great people. Yeah, totally. Well, I think that people with wild game, like uh, you know, my, my parents were always like the, take some backstrap, put it in flour and fry it, you know? And it's like, by the way, that's really delicious. Yeah, it <laughs> like, is. It is. Right. It's good. It's good. It's just like, you know, after, if that's your only, only route, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just tough. And I guess I want to get your opinion because I, I am in the camp of go ahead and leave wild game, like medium rare. But some people are in the camp of like burn it till it's dead because you don't want to get bacteria and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, don't burn it till it's dead uh, <laughs> because it's already dead. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I look any type of wild game for the most part is very very lean, right? And so the forgiveness level on overcooking gets really really low. Mm-hmm. So if you overcook a steak and it has a bunch of fat running through it, uh, a beef steak, I should say. You, you know, it might not be as dry. I mean, mm-hmm. it'll be dry, but it won't be, it won't be as dry because you have that kind of, uh, that cushion in there, which is the fat that's mm-hmm. melting through the meat. 
um, on a piece of venison. So if you cook a, a white tail backstrap, there is no fat running through that. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. the moment that you really pass medium rare, you're going to start to dry it out. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, there's, there's other ways to cook it as well. Um, if you introduce some kind of fat to it, that's not an issue, right? So um, obviously, if you grind venison and you add fat to it and make sausage, you're going to cook it past medium rare. Yeah, yeah. And, but it won't be dry because you had you have the introduction of that fat to keep it um, to keep it moist. So I, I definitely think no more than medium rare. I'm not going to lie. I used to be just solely a rare, you know, red meat kind of guy, mm -hmm. but I've eventually I've kind of wandered back into the medium rare crowd. It actually wild game is fine. Medium rare. Um, it doesn't dry it out. It actually allows it to break down just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, and so th there is definitely a, a little bit more tenderness you get there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm definitely a medium rare guy. And that was that just that fact alone, I wasn't aware of, like, I thought that uh, wild game was kind of like pork where you just had to cook it all the way through. And so I endured a, many, Many a dry, leathery steak before I finally figured that. I, figured that I mean, out. I definitely, I definitely would say, you know, proper field care is super important. Um, yeah, totally. You know, you know, if you're if you're coming back from the back country with an elk and it's really hot and you don't take steps to um, really protect that mm -hmm. um, that meat on the way back, if you get it home and it doesn't, you know, if it has any kind of a sour or odd smell to it you should definitely totally discard it yeah um i mean because things yeah then you would want to cook that piece of meat um now bear on the other hand yeah bear you definitely want to cook yep um bear's yeah. another thing you get trigonosis <laughs> trigonosis yeah and it happens to people so yep. yeah that's yep. not that that is not a medium rare yeah yeah like bear um, any carnivore right because bear cougar mm -hmm. if you eat a bobcat like any sort of carnivore has to be cooked all the way through yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you bring up the bobcat. I've seen a lot more people eating bobcats and mountain lions than I've ever seen before. So I've heard mountain lions incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested to try it. Now, obviously I don't have a mountain lion in my freezer, but, yeah. uh, they're tough, it, to they're tough to find. I, I've yeah, only ever seen tough. one and I know people, uh, Verlin who's, he works here and he's been on the podcast is he spends more time in the woods than any of us. And he's, He's he's seen several, but never had the opportunity to kill one. They're just extremely elusive animals, you know. Yeah, and I think more times than not, they are seeing you way before you even get a chance to see them, if you see them. Seriously, seriously, and I've been in areas like where I was like, man, there's there was a cougar that came through here very recently, and you and never he's looking ever at you. It. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> right. it's like probably right. in a tree somewhere looking down on right. me, you know. <laughs> but. Yeah, the amount of times that a cougar probably could have killed me in the woods and I wouldn't have even known is is kind of scary. But you know, you can't you can't we can't I'll think about those fly. things. <laughs> I'll let them walk today. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm not that hungry. You know, I don't really like human. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's they're they're incredible, and I've heard their meat is delicious. So yeah, see, there's lots of good stuff out there that I just you know like who who knew? Yeah, someone had to it. try it. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what is your favorite kind of meat? Hmm. Uh, I would say in Texas, we are really lucky to have an abundance of axis. Um, and so axis deer, uh, native to India originally, they are, uh, free ranging in, uh, Hawaii. So if you go to Hawaii, there's awesome axis hunts there. Um, but it's, 
it's um, a little bit different than a whitetail. Um, definitely different than elk. I would say it, uh, I don't know how to describe it other than uh, the flavor is a little bit sweeter um, and it's got a little bit more depth to it. So um, very, uh, um, a, a solid red color. I feel like a lot of the whitetail is more on the lighter side, mm. um, but the, the access is like, super red really really delicious meat yeah i've heard a whole lot of really good things about the axis deer but um i haven't had the opportunity to eat any of it so i've i've enjoyed whitetail i think whitetail is particularly delicious especially over mule deer um i think mule deer is good but it definitely has a it's not quite as tender i don't think and it is more of a uh it just has a little bit more of a gamey flavor to it you know yeah, and I would say that the whitetail, especially here in Texas, I mean, they're, they're pretty mild um, from a flavor perspective. And I think that's what I like, the contrast between the whitetail and the uh, the axis. The axis just has a little bit more flavor. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and flavor yeah. in a good way or like a gaminess flavor? Yeah, no, flavor in a good way. No, not gamey. Um, if anything, if you gave me a, a, a piece of whitetail and a piece of axis next to one another, I would... I wouldn't say that the whitetail is gamey, but it you could definitely go that direction. You could say that, yeah, this axis is not anywhere near gamey. Interesting. Is it tender too? It's very tender. Inter- yeah, because yeah, I found that yeah. whitetail is extremely tender. Like, and they're bigger, so there's a lot more meat that come off those animals. So really? you get a lot more to work with. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean the the axis bucks. Um, they kind of have an interesting shape to them. They, they uh, almost, the, the real big ones kind of have like an oval kind of look to them. Um, and, uh, I find the whitetails are a lot more streamlined looking. Mm-hmm. Um, but those axes, those, there are some pretty big ones walking around down here. So, uh, you get a lot of meat, a lot of backstrap. Um, the hind quarters are great. Um, even the front shoulders are just so much bigger. I mean, you don't actually recognize it down here until you start, you know, caping out a whitetail and you look at an axis and you're like oh okay they're two different things yeah seriously yeah going to hawaii and shooting like on an axis hunt has been one of my you know definitely a bucket list hunt and i think it's becoming more and more popular now so i mean because it's not hard to get to hawaii um and it's still the u.s so you don't have to worry about any kind of uh you know stuff with bringing your bringing your gun or your bow Mm -hmm. it's easy to get there it's easy to uh find someone to hunt with yeah Totally. I think it's something that's definitely on the on the list. I think next year uh, I'm saving up for a trip to Wyoming. I think we talked about this on the phone before the podcast, but yeah, I want to want to get some you know pronghorn. That's uh, the next one on the on the old muzzleloader list. So yeah, yeah. But speed um, goat. Yeah, exactly. Speed goat, man. I, I think it'll be fun. I think it'll be fun. Um, oh yeah. So what are some tips and tricks that you have for people that are preparing wild game, like common mistakes people make, mistakes you made yourself, that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, you learn through mistakes, and mistakes are good. Uh, Don't overcook anything. So I think it's important to work with a really hot pan. If you're going to work with a skillet, um, get it really hot, almost to the point of smoking. Um, And just a touch of oil. And I'm talking just on on a basic backstrap or a tenderloin uh-huh. um if you were just gonna pan sear it you get that pan really hot that helps build like a really great crust okay um salt pepper and garlic keep it really easy um wild game i think 
has a really beautiful flavor and I think it should be kind of left alone versus being masked with a lot of sauces and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, keep it, keep it simple from uh, a seasoning perspective, hot pan, uh, and then just don't overcook it. And then, and then let the meat rest, let the juices come back together. Um, and it's like one of the most delicious things ever. Uh, so that's tip one is, is to, uh, not overcook it. Uh, I think tip two would be if you have the ability to add fat into a dish somehow, um, try that. So, um, you know, one of the things that I like to do is if you take uh, a roast, don't think of it just as a roast. So try to, you know, butterfly it out and try to make it something different um, or make it a cutlet. Um, mm-hmm. If you make it a cutlet, you could you could put a piece of ham on top of it, and then you could bread it as one, um, and then you could fry it and make it like um, like a Cuban sandwich, which is really delicious. Mm, yeah. um, and so you know you put some pickles and mustard on a roll, and you have this really amazing um, amazing sandwich. So look at things a little differently. Um, I would say it's also really important trim your silver skin when you're butchering your animal. Yeah. Um, you know it's really easy. We all know it. Butchering is uh, it's a lot of work. And when you're standing there, whether you're hunting or you're at your ranch or wherever you are, um, take the time then, because I think it's better to put a final product into a, um, a vacuum seal bag uh, versus say, oh, yeah, I'll just do the rest later when I go to cook. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you pull that piece of meat out later, you're not going to want to clean it up yeah. and make it really nice. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, right? I mean, I look, I'm, I'm a human at the end of the day. So, like, I, I get these things home, too, and I'm like, oh, I just don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. You need to do it then. Um, so, yeah, I definitely get all your silver skin off. That is the most gross bite ever. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's not like beef fat, right? Like, it doesn't melt. Um, and that's just how it is with a lot of, with a lot of venison out yeah. there. Um, and then I think just the other thing, and this is not really so much a cooking thing, but... Uh, Storage is really, really important. So if you have uh, the ability to vacuum seal, always vacuum seal. Mm-hmm. Um, there are pieces of venison in my deep freeze that I kid you not are like three and a half years old and they're just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the more uh, air that you could take off the meat directly, the better that it's going to store. Yeah. Um, same yeah. thing with fish, right? Same thing with, with you know, vegetables too, if, you, if you're going to put them in a vacuum sealer. Yeah. One thing that I've found, uh, just to add to that is, uh, if you don't have a vacuum sealer, don't just wrap it in butcher paper, like wrap it in cellophane and then put it in butcher paper and then put it in the freezer. Cause I've, I've found that's a tip that Nate Savage here gave to me. And I found that to be significantly more effective at preserving meat than just straight up butcher paper. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other thing is when you take it out of your freezer and butcher paper, put it in the bowl when you defrost it, because, that will bleed right through the paper. I've also <laughs> had them. I've, I have, I have had, I had a uh, freezer up in the Northeast that actually, I don't know whether it got unplugged. It, somehow oh, or another, no. it was turned off. Uh, I lost the whole freezer with meat, but everything was uh, just wrapped in butcher paper and it was gross. That's, so that's, why I'll just leave it there. But uh, uh, I can imagine yeah. <laughs> when things defrost, Juice comes out, blood comes out, this comes out, that comes out. 
put it in the bowl. You'll be a lot happier. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've made that, I've made that mistake on a much, like I've just not, I've just set it on the counter and that's bled and that's a disaster. Yeah. But nothing to the level of having a whole freezer go bad. That would, that would be. Horrible. Oh yeah. No. And it's just, I mean, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking to watch a whole freezer go down. Oh, seriously. I mean, if you could save stuff, save stuff, but you know, you, you also have to be careful. Too, not worth getting sick. You don't want to get sick. No. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, well, I I really think that's that's excellent tips. Um, I think that I am going to be a better cook having listened to them. So, <laughs> um, I, think, I think it's also just important try to use wild game as an ingredient as you would with anything else, yeah. right? So, um, you know, if you like stir fries or something like that, you know, typically stir fries are really a thinly sliced piece of beef. So, thinly sliced a piece of venison. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's going to be cooked more than than medium rare, um, but that's fine because it's thin, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think you know when you think about uh, how to cook it, it just depends on the recipe too. Yeah, totally. Well, I guess that uh, with with predators, like what are some good recipes there because you have to cook them thoroughly. Yeah, uh, with something like that, I probably would err on the side of more the braising, chili, you know a long cook make sure it's cooked really thoroughly mm-hmm. um also you know when you cook something for a long period of time uh in a covered setting like a dutch oven um you know you could start it in the stove finish it in the oven that's actually gonna help break it down or mm-hmm. a crock pot slow cooker pressure cooker um that's gonna break it down too to make it more tender so yeah. um i think you're accomplishing two things there which is one um cooking it to a safe temperature to eat uh, and two, breaking it down so it's nice and tender and delicious. Yeah, so, yeah. I that's think what I would do. Roasts seem to be like pretty popular around here with people, uh, mm-hmm. with bears and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think, or, or you know, if you're going to smoke something, uh, you know, just make sure that the internal temp and get yourself a really good internal temp uh, or internal thermometer, I should say. Um, you know, probe it and see where it's at. Totally. Yeah, I think that's great. Great advice. Um, so I think that we're getting pretty close on our time here. I know it's getting a little bit later over there. Uh, and all this talking of food is making me hungry. So, <laughs> uh, so I want to send people, make sure that they can get in touch with you and your content. Uh, I know you're Mike Reber on Instagram and I know you've written articles and done some YouTube content and stuff like that. So go ahead and plug all your stuff. This is your time. Yeah. So, uh, if you want to, uh, Find me on Instagram. It's at Mike Reber, uh, and uh, I'm on there all the time. So uh, happy to chat about muzzleloading, cooking, bow hunting, all that good stuff. Texas, uh, and if you uh, if you're in the state of Texas and uh, you want to see uh, the Roaming Fire barbecue rig, uh, the Instagram handle is at Roaming Fire Food, uh, and the website is RoamingFire.co. Awesome. And then that if they wanted to uh, book you, right, because you go out and cook at different ranches, correct? I do, yeah. So uh, the, the rig makes its way around the great state of Texas, uh, and there's really nowhere that we won't go. Uh, it does have uh, all-terrain giant tires on it, so we can get to these. We can get to some pretty, uh, pretty uh, faraway ranches and uh, cross some streams to get there. So it's cool. So, yeah, uh, private events hunting parties, uh, hunting ranches, all sorts of stuff like that. Give me a shout. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, for you guys listening, make sure to check out Mike Reber. Uh, definitely check out his Instagram. His Instagram is popping off. Uh, it's awesome. 
lots of good stuff on there. Uh, and if you guys are listening to this on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Hit the bell to receive notifications. And uh, we usually post about twice a week. Uh, just reviews, uh, load development, all that kind of stuff, all muzzle loading and black powder related. Um, so you'll definitely want to make sure you're uh, keeping up with that content. And if you're listening on an audio platform, leave us a review because that is going to help distribute this content into the hands of people that uh, that want to get involved in muzzle loading, and that's what we want. So I really appreciate all you guys listening, and uh, we'll see you in the next one.